0: Hey, Proof listeners, it's Kevin Pang here. We're working on season 15 right now, and we're feeling a little bit nostalgic. So this week, we're going to dig into our archives and tell you about one of our favorite episodes. It's apple picking season, and this week's episode follows a man in search of a rare and historic apple variety. Reporter Claire Donnelly brought the story to us in 2021. How far are you willing to travel for something you love? We'll always have Paris. We didn't have, we, we lost it until you came to Casablanca.
1: I'm also just a girl standing in front of a boy.
2: You complete
0: me. Okay, quick story. I was in my early twenties, bright-eyed and idealistic, a romantic at heart, and I was in love. The thought of being together consumed my every thought. Day and night, i dream about being reunited. I'd rehearse the words that come out of my mouth when we laid eyes on one another again. Then the big day came. I drove south on Interstate 55 from Chicago, a thousand miles to New Orleans. It took two days. I had butterflies in my stomach. And then there it was. After years of separation, two once again, became one. I was together again with my beloved, a roast beef and shrimp po' boy from Domilisi's. So, how far are you willing to travel for something you love? Today, we bring you a story about a man and his unrelenting quest for a lost apple before it's too late. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Kevin Pang, and this is Proof. Hey, friends. It's Kevin Pang here. Look, there are so many food magazines and recipe websites out there. I'm going to try to convince you that America's Test Kitchen is different. We spend nearly $11,000 to develop every recipe, and that's an actual figure. Like our Texas smoked beef brisket, for example. That took us two years and 500 pounds of beef just to nail down. So if you want to give our site a test spin, I'm happy to give you 14 days to poke around and try our ATK recipes. Go to ATKpodcast.com and I'll set you up. All right, here we go. On to this week's show. Claire Donnelly brings us today's
1: story. I first learned about Tom Brown when I came across this one picture of him online. In it, he's sitting behind a table at what looks like a farmer's market. He has grayish-white hair, a grayish-white mustache. He's wearing a short-sleeved denim shirt and a stick-on name tag. Spread out on the table in front of him is this amazing display of apples. Tom has divided a big white piece of paper into a grid and placed a different apple inside each square. Underneath each specimen, he's carefully written its name in black marker. There's a bright green apple with a little blush of pink labeled the rose limber twig and a deep red, almost purple apple called the bushy top. And then there's this weird, muddy-looking brownish-green one labeled simply Frog. Hanging behind Tom is a sign that says, My hobby, finding lost apple varieties. I really wanted to talk to this guy. But as it turns out, Tom is not exactly easy to get a hold of. The first time I called, he said he was too busy for an interview. He sounded a little stressed and grumpy. It was early spring, and he said he had a bunch of things he needed to do to get his apple trees ready to plant. The next couple of times, he didn't answer. I left several voicemails over about two months. Eventually, Tom called me back and agreed to do an interview on Zoom. His wife helped us get connected one Thursday afternoon.
3: Uh, Let's see. Wait a second. We're... Uh, speak again. So, see if we got the volume. Okay. Yeah. <coughs> I'm Tom Brown. And at current time, I'm 79, and be 80 the next birthday in October.
1: Tom is retired. He lives in North Carolina in a town called Clemens, near Winston-Salem. He's made it his mission to find lost apples. Because back in the day, there used to be a lot more different kinds of apples in the United States, like thousands more. They had incredible names, like June Pink, Candy Stripe, Leather Breeches, Fall Rose, and Green Witch. They grew in people's yards, they grew on the side of the road, some of them you could buy from nursery catalogs. But then, people slowly lost track of all these different types. The people that planted the trees died, or trees were cut down to make room for new development, or they got enveloped by forests. So what Tom calls a lost apple is one that exists in the historical record, but hasn't been found at all in recent years. And he's spent the past 22 years trying to track them down. Tom has always been the kind of guy who likes to search for things. When he was a kid growing up in rural North Carolina, he and his brother loved to hunt for arrowheads. The county where they lived, called Iredell County, was originally occupied by two different Native American tribes, the Catawba and the Cherokee. We'd
3: spend hours looking for old arrowheads, and a couple of miles from us, on a friend's property, there was an Indian village site, you know, where you could find a reasonable number of arrowheads.
1: Decades later, Tom turned his attention to apples when he met a guy selling heirloom apples and apple trees at a farmer's market.
3: I was fascinated by all the names and colors and textures, and and I asked if there were any lost apple varieties in my area, and it turned out that there was one, uh, Harper seedling. So I started hunting for that, and
1: that's how I got started. He tells it pretty matter-of-factly here, but he was hooked. He's very methodical about his hobby. Tom keeps a list of all of the apples he's looking for and where they were last seen. Sometimes he finds out about them from old books or nursery catalogs. And sometimes he just asks around in small towns, like this one time when he was driving back from a town in western North Carolina.
3: It was like a little general store there, and on my way back I stopped to get a a Coke, and I asked the man behind the counter if there were any old apples that he had ever heard of. And and he, one
1: of them, he said, was a, a Downs apple, like D-O-W-N-S. Tom says he made six trips back to that part of the state and finally located the apple.
3: That one uh, Downs apple tree was just on its very, very last legs. And uh, then the, the other one I found has a disease problem. So very soon that one would have been lost forever, you know. <laughs> and, and so now the
1: the people in that area can enjoy Down's apple trees. Tom doesn't take much special equipment on these apple hunting trips, usually just his notebook and some business cards. Or maybe a copy of his latest newsletter. He writes a yearly newsletter about his adventures called Apple Search.
3: If it's the right time of the season, I'll take something to my little apple pick or the little cage affair on the end of a pole or, you know, my pruning tools to get something out of the top of a tree.
1: The way Tom does it, apple hunting involves a lot of driving.
3: If I'm going a long ways, I- I take no-dose.
1: <laughs> no-dose, also known as caffeine pills.
3: Because I usually get up, like, if I'm going one of those six-hour trips, I, I'll get up at like 2.30 and—no, no, I'll get up at 2 and try to be out of the house for 3.30, and in the first four hours, I'll have three no-dose pills.
1: Honestly, I was shocked to hear Tom describe this crazy schedule. I worked the early morning shift at a radio station for a few years and couldn't handle the 4 a.m. wake-up calls. Tom is almost 80 years old and does this regularly for fun. I asked him, aren't you exhausted all the time? No, no, no.
3: It keeps me energized. I'm just happy as a lark. I mean, I'm just, I love
1: that kind of stuff. Tom says he and his wife often try to take the long way to get places, like the time they were invited to a wedding near Washington, D.C., that way, they can scan the sides of the country roads for apple trees and pull over if they spot one so Tom can try to identify it. Once, he saw three older men sitting underneath an apple tree, and he pulled over to ask them if they knew what kind of apple it was.
3: It's like collecting Barbie dolls. You get one, and then you you really like it, or somebody does, and then all of a sudden you have 50 of them. It's like, it's addictive, it's, but it's fun to do. And, you you know, you meet so many Interesting people, and as a general rule, everybody likes apples, so they're, you know,
1: receptive. Tom also gets emails and calls from people across the country who want his help identifying their mystery apples. He even once got an inquiry from overseas.
3: What happened was I I said, well, you know, I travel over a pretty big area. Where do you live? You know, I might be able to stop by and actually look at the real apples, And then I found out the lady was in England. (laughs) I didn't know she was in England before that.
1: Since Tom started searching, he's found more than 1,000 different kinds of apples in and around North Carolina. On his website, he keeps a whole alphabetized list of every apple he's located and where he found it. The names, again, are delightful. There's the August Queen, which Tom found in Wilkes County, North Carolina, the Aunt Jane in Scott County, Virginia, the Banana Greenskin in Yancey County, North Carolina, and the Buckeye Beauty in Watauga County, North Carolina. And those are just a few from the A's and B's. Not all of the varieties Tom's come across are rare or lost, but he loves the thrill of the chase.
3: If somebody asked me, well, what is your very favorite apple? And it's maybe an odd reply. It, it's an apple that I'm looking for and I haven't found yet.
1: The stakes are pretty high in some of these searches. These old apple trees could be buried in tangled forests or hiding in plain sight in people's backyards. If no one is around to identify them, they're in danger of disappearing forever.
3: Apple trees don't last a long time like oak trees, you know, which might last 200 years. They get uh, rotten in the center and fall down. Also, there were still people around that remembered the names and could identify them. And uh, so if I started today, I couldn't have found, you know, the number of apples that I found when I did. Of course, if I had started 40 years earlier, it would have been incredible what all I would have found. (laughs)
1: So Tom is racing against a ticking clock. There's also another reason these apple trees and apple varieties are so precarious, and that's because apples don't grow true to seed. So if you're eating a particularly delicious apple and you think, hey, I really like this apple. I want to grow a whole tree of this kind of apple in my backyard. You can't just plant the seeds from the apple you just ate. I mean, you can. You just won't get exactly the same kind of apple you'll get a tree that's a cross between the apple you ate and whatever neighboring tree pollinated it.
0: It's just like uh, parents have two sons, and neither of them are exactly alike. They don't look exactly like mother or father, they don't look exactly like each other, because it's genetic recombination.
1: That's Robert Crassweller, a horticulture professor and tree fruit specialist at Penn State University.
0: So you have pollen from one variety or cultivar, and it pollinates the flower of the other variety, and that's a kind of a hybridization.
1: If you really want that exact apple you ate that was so delicious, you have to do what's called grafting. Without getting too technical, that's when you take a small piece from one apple tree called scion wood and attach it to a kind of apple tree base called a rootstock. Then that scion wood will grow the same kind of apples as the original tree you took it from. You've essentially cloned the original apple tree. So with these old varieties, like the Downs apple tree that Tom was talking about, you can't just pick the apples and plant their seeds to keep them in existence. Someone has to know how to take a cutting and graft it. And that's what Tom Brown likes to do whenever he identifies an apple.
3: For instance, somebody contacted me from Oregon and uh, told me about their apple tree. And, you know, with some effort, I was able to identify it. And I would like to have had that cuttings because I identified the apple. But after they got their apple identified, they didn't respond anymore. So it, it helps if you can show up at their front door.
1: Tom doesn't discriminate when it comes to apples. He's happy hunting for any variety he hasn't found yet. But right near the beginning of his apple hunting career, one particular apple captured his imagination and set him on a quest.
3: You know, when I got interested in heritage apples, I learned that there was an apple called the Junahuasca.
1: According to a legend, a Cherokee chief named Chief Junaluska had an apple tree on his property that he absolutely loved. It was said to be his favorite of all of the dozens of apple trees in his orchard. The story goes that when the U.S. government tried to buy Chief Junaluska's land, he refused. He didn't want to part with his beloved apple tree. So the government was forced to offer Chief Junaluska 50 extra dollars for the land because it contained that apple tree. That's roughly $1,200 in today's money. Chief Junaluska reluctantly accepted. When Tom Brown heard this story, he was fascinated. He had to find this lost Cherokee apple. It turns out Chief Junaluska was a real chief who lived near what is now Macon County, North Carolina right on the border with Georgia. He was born sometime around 1780. And from what we know, he actually wasn't given the name Junaluska right when he was born. He had two different names during his life. Louise Reed says that's not unusual for Cherokee tradition at the time. They
4: would go maybe to two, three different names throughout their lifetime. And it would depend on what you're doing or what comes up that uh, causes your name to change.
1: Reed is the cultural resource coordinator at the Junaluska Museum in Robbinsville, North Carolina. She's also a Cherokee tribal member. Reed says that when Junaluska was a baby, before he was named Junaluska, his parents propped him up against a tree, and he fell over. Then they named him G U L L
4: space K A space L A space S K
1: I called called And that means um, he fell over. He went by that name until around 1814, when he became Junaluska. But we'll come back to that in a second. Now, around the time that Junaluska was a young man, a war was brewing. Some tribal members were resentful that white settlers were encroaching on Native American land. Many of them didn't want to be forced to adopt white people's customs and traditions, and decided to fight back. This led to a war between opposing factions of Native Americans, particularly members of the Creek tribe, and the U.S. Army between 1813 and 1814. It was called the Creek War. Some southern state militias joined in, too. Junaluska was fighting on the side with the U.S. Army. According to one historian I talked to, that was because Junaluska thought there was a way that the Cherokee Nation could become its own state and exist peacefully alongside the white settlers. During the Creek War, Junaluska ended up fighting alongside a certain United States general who later became president, Andrew Jackson. And as the legend goes, he actually saved Andrew Jackson's life at a battle called the Battle of Horseshoe Bend. Here's Louise Reed again.
4: When he saw a Creek Indian going after Andrew Jackson, he intervened and uh, saved his life. So Andrew Jackson won at the time, and that helped him become the president. And then during that time period, Andrew Jackson made like, you know, he was gonna reward him. And instead, later on, he went through with making the natives go out west to Oklahoma So that's a trail of tears. But uh, it was rumored that Junaluska said if he had known he was going to do that, he would have killed him himself.
1: As Reed said, Andrew Jackson and the U.S. Army ultimately won the war. The Creeks were forced to give up millions of acres of land. Once Jackson became president, he went on to sign the Indian Removal Act, which forced Native people off their land so white settlers could move there. Like Reed said, the story goes that Junaluska said that if he had known that was going to happen, he would have killed Andrew Jackson himself. It was after the Creek War when Junaluska's name became Junaluska, according to Reed. His name, Junaluska, Chonaluski, means
4: tried but failed when he went to war against the Creeks. He was boasting around that he was going to kill every one of them. He meant that literally. Killed every one of them, but he didn't, so he tried but failed.
1: Now let's go back to that story about June and the apple tree. Apple hunter Tom Brown was captivated by this story. He knew he had to try to find this apple, so he set out on a search.
0: We'll have the story of that search right after this break. Hey, Proof listeners, it's Kevin Pang. I've got one question. Do you believe in magic? Well, I do, and it's the magic of mangoes. From that fresh spark in executive chef Erica Garrecoa's mango ceviche in Ecuador... Hey,
4: buen provecho. Están servidos.
0: ...to the oomph they bring, mixed into the polques and luchador matches in Mexico.
2: in <inaudible> Mexico... Con el nos Magicos. Magicos. And to
0: that refreshing brightness in America's Test Kitchen's pickled mango recipe, mangoes don't just influence magic, they create it. From their place of origin to destinations all across the globe, mangoes transform dishes into instant classics. Learn more about the magic of mangoes and their origin stories at mango.org. And now, back to our story.
1: Before we get into Tom Brown's hunt for the Alaska apple, let's talk about where apple varieties come from. Like, how did apples end up in the United States?
2: So every apple that we eat in the world today traces its ancestry largely, though not exclusively, to apples that... Emerged in the wild in the Tian Shan Mountains uh, on the border of China and Kazakhstan.
1: That's Stephen Mim. He's a history professor at the University of Georgia. He says every modern apple variety has some connection to these mountains, where there's an ancient apple forest that he says likely developed hundreds of thousands of years ago. That forest still exists today, though it's a lot smaller than it once was. I've looked at pictures of it and it's really beautiful. There are these tall, rocky, snow-capped mountains looming behind and then rolling green forests with clumps of apple trees in front. Mim says those original wild apples actually didn't taste very good. For the most part, they were pretty bitter.
2: But the bears that lived in this particular forest were unintentional cultivators by selecting the sweeter apples and eating them. And then defecating the seeds, they effectively propagated sweeter and sweeter versions of these apples.
1: So thanks to the bears, by the time humans stumbled upon them, these wild apples that used to be kind of gross tasting were actually edible. And people who came across these trees started picking the fruit and carrying it back with them. Mim says these apples spread along the Silk Road, a network of ancient trade routes that first started around 130 BC. They linked China, India, Indonesia, the Middle East, Africa, and Europe. Then the apples came across the Atlantic Ocean to North America, along with the Europeans looking to explore the so-called New World. Some people brought very young apple trees, others brought apple seeds.
2: When Europeans came to North America, they generally brought seeds and just threw them in the ground and saw what happened. And then eventually started to select out ones that fortuitously, you know, seemed to work and taste nice.
1: (laughs) These new apple varieties also crossed with North America's native crab apples. In the South, in places like Georgia and North Carolina, Mim says the first people to cultivate apples, like grow them on purpose and pick out their favorite varieties, were indigenous people like the Cherokee. He says we know this because later, when the federal government forced the native people off their land, they assessed each piece of property.
2: And in those assessments, every single farm belonged to a Cherokee person, They made notes on what was there. And we know that there were huge numbers of orchards, This, I mean, with many, many thousands of trees. So this is not a small undertaking. And it was not just apples. They also had peaches, cherries, pears, but primarily apples.
1: And then white settlers moved onto these lands that had been essentially robbed from the Cherokee. White settlers like Silas McDowell. McDowell was a kind of self-taught Renaissance man. He was interested in mineralogy, geology, zoology, and history. He was also fascinated by botany and fruit cultivation, especially apples. And because the Cherokee had left behind so many apple varieties, according to Stephen Mim, Silas McDowell started prowling around these abandoned orchards, looking for the best apple trees and taking cuttings so he could grow them himself. A handful of other white men in the area started doing this, too— and when they found apples they liked, they gave them names.
2: Typically, they gave them names that were, in some cases, Cherokee names that then stuck with them. In other cases, these apples might have eventually acquired other names that were that were more Anglophone names. But in either case, a good number of the apples then that became working stock uh, originated with this selection.
1: There was the Tiliqua, the Colisega, the Nickajack. Here's an excerpt from something Silas McDowell wrote in 1859.
0: My new varieties, as I dragged them from the secret abodes, I wrote out the history of each and gave it a name. Generally the name of the stream on which it originated, sometimes the name of the Indian who was the occupant of the old field where it grew.
1: It was Silas McDowell who gave the Junalusca apple its name. It was also Silas McDowell who wrote the story about Chief Junaluska refusing to part with his apple tree. By 1857, Stephen Mim says horticultural magazines included descriptions of the Junaluska.
2: We know that it was grown in multiple states. In other words, nursery catalogs in about five to six states in the South carried it. So it, it had some following, though it's not... A blockbuster tree like uh, some of the other southern
1: varieties. According to Mim, people like McDowell, who were interested in apples, weren't necessarily trying to preserve Native American culture by giving these apples Cherokee names and selling them at nurseries. He says they were mainly trying to find apple varieties that would grow well in the South. The Junaluska was sold at commercial nurseries from 1858 to 1894. And then... It disappeared. It became a lost apple. Which brings us back to Tom Brown. Tom knew that Chief Junaluska had lived in southwestern North Carolina, near the border with Georgia. Back then, Tom was spending a lot of time in northern Georgia, making lots of trips back and forth looking for a different apple called the Fort's Prize. One day, during one of these roughly four-hour drives, Tom pulled his car over at the last convenience store before crossing into Georgia. He went inside and did what he always does, which is ask around about apples. Tom almost always asks, do you know of any old apples in this area? Tom says one of the older guys in the store remembered hearing about a handful of apple varieties, including something called a sheepnose sweet and a white june. The guy also told Tom, you need to go see Johnny Crawford. He has an apple tree collection. So, on his trip back home that evening, Tom stopped by Johnny Crawford's house in Franklin, North Carolina, about 15 miles from the Georgia border. He looked at all of Johnny's trees, but none of them was a junaluska.
3: Said that if I could come back someday, he would be glad to take me to some places where there was some old apples. And so, you know... Maybe three weeks later, I came back up there.
1: Tom and Johnny's first stop was a man named Robert's house. According to Tom, Robert has a small commercial orchard. He has some older kinds of apples, but no junalusca. And then Johnny took Tom to a house about 20 minutes away, on top of a mountain. It belonged to a woman named Kate Mincy. On his website, where Tom has written an extensive account of his hunt for the Junaluska, he describes Kate as a delightful 80 year old who talked fast and had a perpetual welcoming smile. Tom says Kate had a handful of old apple varieties.
3: But it was the time of year when you didn't have apples on the tree, it was the winter time. And she described uh, one of them, and it sounded, you know, a little bit like uh, the Junaluska. But she called it uh, John Berry Keeper because it came from the old John Berry place and kept real well. But it sort of sounded a little bit like a simplified uh, description of the uh, Junaluska.
1: Tom was anxious to see the John Berry Keeper apples once they were ripe. He thought maybe it was a Junaluska apple, just with a different name. So he waited. He came back and checked on them five different times as the weather slowly warmed up. Then, finally, the apples were right. Tom collected some and then set about trying to confirm that it was actually the Junaluska. To do that, he usually tries to find as many people as he can who saw the apple variety before it disappeared. And then he shows it to them. If it matches the apple they remember, it looks the same and tastes the same, then Tom considers it a match. Tom showed the possible Junaluska apple to a couple of people who had mentioned seeing it. One of those people was a woman named Ollie Francis. Tom actually mailed her a box of apples. A few days later, he got an excited call from Ollie. Even though she didn't remember the apples, her children were in town visiting, and both of them recognized the apple as the Junaluska.
3: And I finally found uh, one person in Georgia, and... Three people in, in North Carolina, one in Macon County and two in Haywood County, that actually had seen the Junaluska, and they had identified it. So I had four people that identified it.
1: Tom Brown had found the Junaluska apple, a variety that most people had completely forgotten about or didn't know about in the first place. The supposed favorite apple of a Cherokee chief a variety that's been around since before the American Civil War.
3: It's very satisfying. It's like, you know, you've really accomplished something. And the only problem with the General it's a Dickens to graft. It has little tiny buds on it, and it's very hard to graft. And what does it taste like? Well, it's a fairly firm apple. It's mildly sour. And uh, it has a Another flavor note that I, I'm sorry, I'm, I am lost words to describe. It, it's more of a cooking apple than an ideal eating apple, I would say. Although I can eat any apple.
1: After hearing so much about the Junaluska apple, I really wanted to see one for myself. Tom Brown said he didn't have time for me to come visit him at his orchard. So I paid a visit to Suzanne and Ron Joyner. They run Big Horse Creek Farm, and they actually got their Junaluska apple tree from Tom Brown. Their property is way up in the Appalachian Mountains in the far northwest corner of North Carolina. To get there, Suzanne scooped me up in her Subaru at the bottom of a pretty gnarly mountain road, which, of course, is named Old Apple Road. (laughs) But it's a mile and a half up here. So So this road is a mile and a half long, and it's this bumpy? What's do you, Oh, you haven't gotten to the oh. big stuff yet. <laughs> <laughs> the gravel crunched underneath the wheels, and when we went over a bump, the whole car bounced from side to side. When we got to the top, a welcoming committee was pecking around in the driveway.
2: <laughs> and then chickens! Oh, yeah. Look out, girls. Look out, girls. Look out, girls.
4: Chicken aren't as dumb as... People think, but they're not really smart either, so. But I've never run over one. They always move. Okay, girls.
1: So. Suzanne and Ron planted their farm's first apple trees in 1986. That first year, according to Ron Joyner, they did everything wrong. For one thing, they planted the trees too close together, which made it really hard to pick the fruit once it was ripe. These days, Ron says, they leave that original orchard to the bears. They actually call it their bear orchard. The joiners now grow about 350 different apple varieties, which are mostly heritage or heirloom apples. And they're not just North Carolina apples. They're varieties from faraway states like Maine and Texas and Oregon. Ron likes to call their orchards a cross-section of Americana. Each tree is labeled with a shiny metal tag tied around its trunk.
5: This is... We have four different orchards here. This is our dwarf orchard. Uh, these are trees all on dwarf rootstock. So they're, uh, these are fully mature. These are as big as they'll
1: get. Um, when I went to visit at the beginning of May, a lot of the apple trees were in bloom, with delicate white flowers all over their branches. No apple fruit yet, though. That comes around June. And the joiners usually don't start harvesting apples until late summer. But lately, because of climate change, the joiner's crop is in danger. You know how sometimes there are those unseasonably warm late winter days? That's bad news for apples. Because Ron says if his apple trees start budding too early during that burst of warm weather, then a snap back to freezing temperatures can kill the apple embryos. So a tree could be in beautiful bloom, but the fruit embryos inside are totally dead.
4: Don't you think if it they blossom and though don't you think they'll be all right?
5: It varies um yeah, it what okay. we do is um when we have a frost like this um I can come through and collect a blossom mm-hmm. and then this this portion here will be the young apple and and I don't have my knife but uh I can cut it open and now that looks like a good
1: yeah.
5: a good uh embryo in there
1: so what are you looking for? Uh,
5: trees that have been damaged by cold will have a brown center where it's, it's, it's literally been burned inside from the cold.
1: After walking around the Joiner's property, chatting about apples for about an hour, it's time for the reason for my visit, the Junaluska. Tucked back in the fourth or fifth row of their dwarf orchard is a little tree with a handful of fluffy white blooms. Here it is. Not as much growth as I'd like to see, though. Yeah, so how long ago do you know how long ago you planted it? Oh,
5: um, 10
4: years ago. At oh. least, probably,
1: yeah. Looking at this small tree, I thought about Tom Brown. Like I said, Tom's usually pretty matter-of-fact when he talks about his apple hunting. But I tried to imagine how he must have felt when he realized he had discovered an apple variety that everyone thought had been lost to time. I also wondered if he felt protective, because seeing this little Junaluska in the Joyner's orchard, it seemed fragile, susceptible to hard freezes or bugs or disease. I wondered how many other junalusca apple trees were out in the world. Were there enough that if something happened to this one, the variety would continue living? And then I started to see why Tom Brown and Ron and Suzanne Joyner were so intent on collecting and preserving these old apples. Ron Joyner says there's just something about this one particular fruit. From biblical
5: references to apples, Adam and Eve, um, all the cultures across the world um, that have apples as part of their lore and legend, um, you don't see that for peaches or, or other fruits. There's something specific about apples that has captured our imagination for hundreds of years, uh, many generations. And uh, we got swept up into that that mysticism, um, When you look at the stories and the histories behind some of these varieties, um, you're seeing, um, uh, well, especially uh, the American varieties, you're seeing the development of American culture through the uh, preserving the growing of apples.
1: There used to be so many apples with different flavors and textures and colors. There were kinds grown specifically for frying or baking or drying or making apple butter or apple brandy. Now, a lot of their rich histories have probably already been lost, or at least slipped into obscurity. But Tom Brown and the joiners aren't alone in their quest to keep them alive. Heritage and heirloom apple orchards are popping up all across the country, in places like Godfrey, Illinois, Blairsville, Georgia, Timberville, Virginia, and Unity, Maine. Remember how I said Tom was so hard to get in touch with? Well, once we got on our Zoom call, I'll never forget, he would not stop talking about apples and all of the countless varieties that are still waiting to be rediscovered by apple hunters.
3: Uh One more thing, Up as you go up to Boone, North Carolina, and then go west and uh, to the west of there, you'd finally come to a place called Trade, T-R-A-D-E, Tennessee. And in that area, there was an apple called a Donnelly Sweet.
1: Guess I have to start on my own apple hunting adventure.
0: Thanks to Claire Donnelly Sweet for bringing us this story. If you like proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. Thanks to our sponsor, The Mango Board. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen. Did you know you can help develop recipes for America's Test Kitchen? It's true. We have nearly 45,000 home testers who try out and give us feedback on new ATK recipes before they're published. Want to be part of the ATK family? Go to americastestkitchen.com slash recipe underscore testing. Once again, that's americastestkitchen.com slash recipe underscore testing to sign up.